Welcome to another special episode of Africa State of Mind, a podcast about great Africans doing great things on the continent and around the globe. It is all about changing the narrative on Africa, owning our own stories and controlling them. The podcast is definitely about curating incredible African stories by Africans. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your suggestions and comments on our social media pages. Our social media pages, again, for those who just joined us, Facebook at Africa State of Mind, Twitter at Africa State Mind. Let's get straight into this episode. My guest on today's episode of Africa State of Mind has one of the most significant roles in the world. When you consider the state of mind globally when it comes to Africa, she sets a record straight and tells it like it is to audiences across Africa, Asia, Europe, the United Kingdom and North America. As the presenter of BBC's World Africa Business Report, Mrs. Lorato Mbele Roberts shows the world that yes, Africa has venture capitalists, investors, multinationals and even with its complexities is ready to do business with the rest of the world on equal footing. Her career spans well over 16 years in broadcast media. She's perhaps one of the most celebrated broadcasters in Africa and the world. And to think, like all fairy tales, her journey started in the most unlikely way. Born in Baragwana's hospital in Soweto, at a time in South Africa where people of color, much less women, didn't have much of a chance of seeing the world, let alone having the world see them. But she's an avid believer in this philosophy. Just because you're in an environment, it doesn't mean the environment has to be inside of you. She has certainly defied all odds while she rubs shoulders with some of the most powerful and influential figures around the world, and she does it with such grace. And she's managed to help steer the conversation globally around Africa from a state of Africa pessimism to Africa possible. She's no doubt changing the African narrative. Lorata, welcome to this episode of Africa State of Mind. Thank you so much. What a generous introduction. Thank you. So lovely to have you um, on this podcast. I'm sure that everybody is going to be really excited because you're <laughs> one of you know when when people think of africa and they think of voices and iconic people you definitely come up across oh, the continent wow. yeah thank you i would never thought of it that way but <laughs> <laughs> what a compliment thank you so i would like to start um with you because uh, before we did this interview obviously i like to study people quite a lot and i spoke to a lot of people not just in south africa but across the continent and everybody kept on saying she's so polished she's so polished and i said to myself no, I'm very sure she went to, to finishing school. In my mind, I'm like, she went to finishing school in Switzerland, that's it. Because yeah. she's got this whole demeanor about her. But wow. that's not actually um, how it is that you became so graced and poised. Can you share that story? I think my mother would disagree, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Again, that's a very uh, kind compliment. It's, it's really interesting you say this, because last week I was invited to my alma mater, St. Mary's School for Girls. Yes. And it was a diversity workshop. Because obviously a lot of um, schools are having to introspect. South Africa has become a different country. Um, the world is changing. Um, issues of racial diversity, sexual orientation, class and wealth gaps are very much at the forefront of public discourse. And young people are not immune to it. So I was invited as one of the old girls to come in and sit in on this diversity series. And as the girls shared their own stories and experiences of the school, there was a common thread mm. that came through, irrespective of who anybody was in the room, age, class, race. And that was Mary's always expected its girls to be ladies. Mm. And the current generation of St. Mary's girls were in some ways slighting the school for that, saying, you know, well, we need to have really... Um, brave and bold conversations and we need to have edgy conversations about the world and the school keeps telling us how to laugh how to dress <laughs> how to stand how to be poised yes. that's completely irrelevant and we all laughed as the old girls because it was such a familiar story is you can be a groundbreaker you can be a leader you must be a leader in mm. your field that's what the school is trying to engender in each of us but you can do it and still be a lady yes. so um you know, it's, it's over 20 years since I was in high school, but every time people say she's so polished, she's so elegant, <laughs> she's such a lady, then I go back to 
they really did their job. They yes. did it well. They, <laughs> they did their job really well, extremely well. Now, um, I, I also, because there was a, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about. Um, so if I jump up and, uh, you know, around, that's the yeah. reason why. So I heard about this amazing story about how Romeo Kumalo and for people in South Africa who, I mean, outside of South Africa who perhaps don't know who, who he is. He's yeah. one of the most influential figures in media and just business in South Africa yeah. across the board. And he gave you the highest compliment pretty much at the beginning of your career. Um, talk yeah. to us about that whole encounter and how you feel that yeah. those words, especially coming from a man and we sit in an yeah. era where women are not always celebrated by yeah. their male counterparts. Let's talk a bit about that. Okay, so I I don't want to get into an entire conversation right now mm. over gender equality, gender yes. equity, what men do, what they don't do. Mm. But the truth of the matter is that newsrooms tend to be populated at the executive and senior level by men. Mm. Those are facts. Media owners tend to be men. Mm. And to a large extent, editors uh, and decision makers tend to be men. It's starting to change, certainly at a much faster level than other sectors mm. of the economy. But those are real issues. Mm. And Romeo Kumalo, many people know him as... Um, a member of the shark tank or a leading entrepreneur and venture capitalist. But uh, in his early days, he was a media boss yes, and an accomplished media boss for that. Um, and he saw me walking down the corridor of the South African Broadcast Corporation, which is really where my uh, career began. And he was walking in one direction and I was walking in another. And People who also know Romeo Kumalo know that he's very well kitted. Yes. He's extremely well dressed and dapper and stoic even, you know. But despite that demeanor, he saw me walking down the passage and he changed tack and he walked directly up to me and he said, Hi, I just wanted to say I'm looking at your work. I'm studying the things you do. And whilst you still got a while to go, I truly believe if you apply your mind to it, mm. you could be Africa's answer to a Larry King or an Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. I don't know if you see that for yourself, but I see that for you. Mm. But what you do with that is really your call. I wish you well. And he walked away. Mm. And I couldn't believe it. I was a cub journalist. I was new, new, new to the field. Um, also, yes, I had a meteoric rise um, despite my youth. Quite early on, I was given my own show mm. uh, by the bosses, and the show did really well. And incidentally, um, my talent was spotted by a series of male bosses. But the person who made the decision that they think I can be frontline was a woman editor called Claire Robinson, who's sure. also um, an author. Mm. And I remember the day she auditioned me at the behest of another male boss, Phil Mulefe. And um, when we came out of that audition, she looked at me and she said to me, you've got the X factor. Sure. You've got it. Mm. But you've got to still work at it. You've mm. got to refine it. But God has just given it to mm. you. Good luck. Mm. And um, she signed off and I got a show. And that's really where my television journey began. So a lot of people, both men and women, to be honest, mm. saw something that perhaps I believed not perhaps, I believed I had, but perhaps was too naive mm -hmm. um, and young to understand what to do with it. So in as much as God has been really good to me and I've had an incredible ride, I've also had many pitfalls, many, I've made many mistakes, tactical mistakes. I've disrespected a few bosses. <laughs> I've, <laughs> you know, I've had moments of incredible hubris and arrogance and I've stumbled and fallen and stood up and learned. Mm. But only now... Um, mid-career, do I look back and I think, now I see what they meant mm. and now I want to actualize it. Mm. I like the fact that you say mid-career and I also love your honesty about some of the mistakes that you have made because more often than not, people are just, you know, everybody talks about their highs and lows, but they never talk about the role that they played oh, yeah. in those. So, I mean, if you are able to perhaps cite one example where you where you made a, a mistake which was tactical or, or anything like that, that you perhaps thought oh. that this is the end of this is the end of it, or you perhaps thought I can never do this again if I want to go any further. Okay, so um, <laughs> I could say quite a few actually, <laughs> because because I am a little bit of a hothead um, at times. But um, I remember the chief executive of the SABC back then, mm. the whole CEO, 
um, coming up to me and saying, I know that you're taking a scholarship abroad, time out to study, and um, let's talk about what's going to happen when you finish mm. your studies. And if you want, I could nominate you to CNN. And whilst inside of me, I thought, yeah, that's right. I'm sure I can. I just found it completely awkward that a chief executive mm. of the organization I'm leaving says he can nominate me to another organization. And it just seemed to me like, you know, it's sort of currying favor. And I said mm. to him, no, thank you. I can do mm. that myself, really. And he said, okay, well. When you need my help, you'll let me know. And I never, ever did call him mm. to say, I need your help, mm. you know. And I look back and I think to myself, well, perhaps I, I wasn't ready for that for that particular jump. You know, I'd only had about three or four years broadcast experience. And perhaps inside of me, I was very intimidated and afraid mm. of what a huge opportunity might offer me. So I never took it up. Um, but I also realized then mm. That's saying what it means. You have one opportunity and one only. Mm. And I missed it. Sure. But it's come around, I suppose, <laughs> full circle. Because I, 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 I do believe, as much as I believe that everybody has this one opportunity if you miss it, but also in that opportunity, if you miss it and you learn the lesson, when it comes back, it comes back in a much bigger way. Completely. So it's it's almost like you have learned that Completely. lesson. Now, um, you know, I'm Ugandan and, and I think this is for all African families. Parents are all about education yeah. and how important it is. My, you know, I just remember my father, everybody in my family had this whole, mm-hmm. everybody has high expectations in terms of education, where you're meant to go, what you're meant to do. And I was watching, an, uh, I think it was like a bit of an interview that you did um, where somebody asked you what it took to become a journalist. And mm-hmm. you said, if you're going to become a journalism, a journalist, don't, don't study, study journalism. journalism. Yes. And I literally tossed and turned for the last three nights. I'm like, I don't quite understand what that means. If you could perhaps expand, because a lot of people would think that that is the best thing that you should be doing. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not one to prescribe to people what they should or shouldn't do. I mm-hmm. can only reflect on my own journey. Mm. I'm not a trained journalist. I'm not a qualified journalist. I've never been to media school, ever. I've never done any course wow. in communications, ever. You definitely have that expected there. <laughs> <laughs> but like you, I had parents who were obsessed about education mm. uh, because of what education can do, mm. especially being a girl. I'm mm. the only girl child in my family, so... It was important to my mother more than anybody else that I don't fail, Mm. that I succeed Mm. and that I be empowered, armed. She always says armed. That's the metaphor with the with the weapon Mm. that an education gives you, because she always said that's the one thing. uh, Nobody can take that away from you. Um, Beauty fades. um, Money um, can whittle away. But intellect, knowledge, skill. Nobody can ever take that away from you. And you should never be afraid to keep on learning. So mm-hmm. even if you've got uh, whatever level of qualifications, uh, level of education, um, you should always be open to learning. The cleaning lady can teach you something. Mm-hmm. The car guard can teach you something. Um, y- your subordinates can teach you something. Your children, when you have them, can teach you something. You must always be open to learning. And what a truism that is. I yes. mean, if you think of technology right now yes. and how we're all struggling to keep up, um, we're being taught by teenagers how to stay relevant in the world. So education is intrinsically important to anybody's inherent um, success. However, no, in fact, not even however, my mind's wandering. So I went to university and I studied uh, an undergraduate degree um, majoring in political science um, and anthropology. And I took some interesting smaller courses like German. Just for just. Do you speak German? No. (laughs) But I did meet Angela Merkel once, and I did speak German to her, and she was very impressed with a hug and a kiss. But that's because I'd rehearsed all that German for three weeks. You practiced. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I took smaller courses, but I'd I'd, I'd, um, majored in politics um, and international relations. Then I did an honors degree in international relations. And then eventually I did a master's degree Mm. in uh, development studies with a specialization on... uh, a specialization in development economics. Mm. And at the end of that journey, six and a half years later, the logical conclusion was perhaps I'm going to work for a multilateral body, a United Nations, an IMF, a World Bank, an African Development Bank. 
But actually, I ended up being a journalist. Mm. And what I found in the newsroom with that background, somehow I had a competitive edge over my colleagues. And I'm not saying it arrogantly. It's, mm. it's just a matter of fact. Mm. I understood world politics in a much more nuanced way. Um, I had a more than a baseline understanding of economics and economic policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I could start to see trends um, that other people couldn't see. The thi- you know, for example, that things like climate change would increasingly become very important social and political variables. Um, um, we were talking about um, changing global forces and geopolitics. It was the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So which countries would emerge as influential um uh, countries on the world stage that would set the trade and the social and political agenda and you could start to see those machinations in a way that people who'd been to journalism school hadn't done. Mm. Not that they couldn't read about it and eventually figure it out but somehow I just was armed with the knowledge and that is why the bosses spotted what they call talent at a young age. Mm. In, in fact, perhaps it wasn't even talent as raw talent which my journalism counterparts probably had much more of than I did. If, if we're just going to say who can speak and articulate, uh, I'm sure there, were, there are people who are much more adept than I am. Mm. But in a current affairs and a news setup, you need people who are on the ball and who can um, speak and discuss and analyze these issues uh, succinctly. Yes. And... Uh, with the information literally at their fingertips. And that's what I had that younger journalists didn't have. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that was a huge variable in opening doors for me um, at a much faster pace Mm -hmm. than many of my counterparts. So when people say to me, what makes you different? Well, um, if we're going to look at superficial variables, looks, no different. Um, Yeah. being able to be articulate, no different. Everybody's had a decent education. That everybody in the South African newsroom. That I part, think so. I would fear. I, I would. I would dare challenge that comment. <laughs> I think articulation. <laughs> I think. I think. I think. I think. I think ability to communicate, express yourself. I think we we all have it. But at that point in time, at that juncture in history, um, who knows Africa? Few could say they mm. do. Who understands geopolitics? Few could say they do. Mm. Who understands markets and economics? Few could say they do. Mm. And I did. And so the doors just kept opening. And so I always say to journalists, seek to be different. Mm. Um, Yes, study communications. It's your passion. But populate your degree with other credits. You know, study a bit of law. uh, Study environmental sciences. um, you've got an interest in medicine study some pharmacology do something but the sort of thing that's going to make you a little bit Mm. more interesting and give you that edge Mm. because you want to separate yourself from the rest Mm. you you do okay i now that makes a hundred percent sense so let's let's go into africa because you have when it comes to just you're sitting at such a how do i phrase this africa sitting at such a beautiful time it's almost like the golden era across the board so we see it from popular culture to Mm. policies to you know just so many things innovation take everything africa is doing pretty well um a lot better than what many people perhaps would have thought a few years ago you know if we think about 2010 Mm. and we think about 2018 Mm. in 2010 everybody was talking about this great um you know Mm. how africa was going to be and in 2018 (laughs) literally it's it's like we're sitting here and things you know things are a lot better than what we could have imagined. So you get this unique opportunity to travel around the continent, to Mm -hmm. interact with people across the continent, you know, um, and I think even more so with people who are policymakers or because economics and the economy and economics uh, across the board is where the next big thing is if we're Mm going to push the continent forward in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? And and what is that like, you know, going through different sectors? So, you know, meeting with people in informal sectors and then meeting with people who are Mm -hmm. like a Dangote and that sort of thing. How Mm -hmm. is that? How do you chameleon yourself in Mm -hmm. all those different ways to get all of those stories accurately? Okay, so... I think shout out to BBC World News. Mm. This is the moment I have to say that. Yes. Because what the BBC has done for me is education that nobody can pay for. Yes. It's priceless. Mm. 
That is a, a, an international broadcaster that's very well networked in terms of having bureaus across so many different geographical regions um, and has more than 100 correspondents um, worldwide and a significant number of those being on the African mm. continent serving a variety of um, news desks within the BBC stable. We've got BBC World News, which is where I work, the Global Television News Division. We've got BBC World Service, which is the International Radio and Current Affairs News and Current Affairs Division that has more than um, 80 years in service. Um, um, we have BBC Swahili mm. BBC Yoruba, BBC Igbo, BBC Pigeon. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, and so we, Somali, mm. so we have an organization that has been able to filter and penetrate humanity mm. at all levels, mm. and certainly so on the African continent. Mm. And because of that, the BBC has made it its mantra mm. that you have to live the story. It's, it's, it's the tagline for the organization, but it's actually the ethos of the BBC newsroom is you can't just report on things that you assume could have been or perhaps read about or secondhand mm. reporting because you've seen it as breaking news elsewhere. Mm. We prefer that people live and experience the environment in which they are reporting on. So whilst you're very much a glamorous news anchor as a presenter and a broadcaster, we do like that you also double up as a reporter. So if you watch mm. BBC, you'll see that uh, people host their shows mm. and then people go into the field and then become reporters on those very shows while somebody else is standing in. Mm. And the idea is to touch and feel and smell mm. the soil, the air mm. that all people are breathing so that you have some level of human and um, emotional connection mm. to the story while still being very objective. You know, the facts must be able to be tested and definitely all viewpoints matter but isn't it better that when you talk about what people are going through in Afghanistan, your eyes would have seen the, the mountains yes. of Kabul? Yes. That when you talk about life in Kenya, you would have walked the streets of Kibera. Mm. That if you're when going you to say discuss, Kibera, I'm like she's gangster. She knows. <laughs> <laughs> when you discuss the inequality yeah. in South Africa. It's because your eyes have seen Kyalicha and they have mm. seen Sandhurst. Mm. You have stood on the Nelson Mandela Bridge. That makes it a lot more authentic. And so to your question, how do you navigate these worlds? I navigate these worlds because my employer expects me to do it. Okay. It is part of mm. the task, the craft, mm. the credibility mm. and the objectivity that they require of you. Mm. You can't sit in, an, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a studio and read up about an issue and then begin to analyze and make commentaries on things you've never seen. Mm. Uh, you know, and I, and I do just have to say that I think when we sit, we sit in a world right now where news is facts, fiction, fake news, you know, mm. we can call out all the, the terms that have now become cliched. <laughs> I'll turn it to facts and everything. And what I do like about um, the BBC is that when I feel that when it comes to reporting the African story mm. in its diversity and complexities, mm. BBC World, BBC as a whole does that really well yeah. from BBC, you know, World Service to, yeah. and I mean, when you're in any country in Africa, you literally, you're listening, you're listening. You're listening yeah. you'll be listening to a radio station <laughs> in Uganda and then suddenly BBC I'm just like, okay, you yeah. know, and, and I even remember that sort of thing yeah. just growing up. Yeah. Now, with that said, um, when we were talking and, and I mentioned about this kind of golden era of Africa, you, what I liked is that as much as everybody's saying that you were almost like, you seem like it's not quite where we think it is, mm -hmm. you know? So because you are too many people, let's just say the face of Africa and a lot of people may perhaps be, you know, maybe like, Oh, Lerato is definitely going to tell the good story. 
that's what her job is. You know, people mm-hmm. may assume that's what your job mm-hmm. is. How do you, if you have been told that, say, for example, you know, one country is doing really well, the economy mm-hmm. is growing and all of these reports have come out and mm-hmm. you go there and you experience something different. How do you tell an accurate story of Africa mm-hmm. without going back into the whole um, hungry children, you know, mm-hmm era but also just right. telling a true story because right. i think that that's something we as africans right. struggle with we feel that keep your dirty laundry inside right. let's just send the press releases right. out so how do you do that okay so being a journalist you understand the the concept of angles mm. and that nobody no journalist mm. can ever claim to have approached a story from every angle mm. as a singular individual so there are many, many, many vantage points mm. from which to tell the story. My husband loves to quote Edward de Bono purely because of that particular thing. Yeah. Is every story is multifaceted mm. and, and how you see or interpret the story depends from where you stand and see it. So men can comment on the experience of being a woman, mm. but you and I feel we're better qualified mm. to discuss that particular topic because we live the experience yes. of being a woman mm. and yet you know this whole idea of uh, intersectionality in that your experience of being a woman is definitely different from my experience of of being a woman and so the world is layered mm. let's let's begin from that basic premise mm. so the african continent is layered it's layered culturally mm-hmm. you know you have anglophone francophone lusophone africa it's layered economically so we're sitting in South Africa, which is regarded as the most advanced economy on the African continent, which, is, which it is. It's got the most adept capital markets, infrastructure, uh, global exposure, you know, fields of innovation. But it's not the number one economy in Africa. The number one yeah. economy in Africa is Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And that's purely a numbers game because there's more than 180 million people in Nigeria 25 million of those people are considered the middle class with a purchasing power that far exceeds 5,000 U.S. dollars. And the number is rising. And so what what Nigeria doesn't have in infrastructure, it makes up for Mm. in numbers and purchasing power. And then you've got East Africa, which as a block creates an even bigger market than South Africa and Nigeria combined because they have the East African community Mm -hmm. and they have freer trade networks. And in East Africa, it's better to look at the region as a block and not as just one monolithic country. I'm just giving you these examples to say Africa is not a country. Mm Africa's not a market. Mm-hmm. Africa's not a people. Africa's not one culture. Africa is new is nuanced and anybody who wants to cover the continent has to be willing to look at the continent from the prism of the lens of Africans mm-hmm. and from the prism of the lens in its complexity. So a prism in itself is made up of crystals. Crystals have different, different facades. And depending on which side the light reflects, Mm -hmm. that's what you see. It's the same with Mm -hmm. this kind of journalism. Mm -hmm. So are bad things happening in Africa? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are bad things happening to good people in Africa? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are those things happening every day? Of course. But are there good things happening in Africa? Yes. Are good things happening to good people? Yes. Are Africans driving their own agenda? Yes. Mm -hmm. But how is it that in 2018 we are content with the one narrative, but we struggle with the other narrative. And why is it when journalists begin from the prism of the good and then sieve it down to see what else they can find, the residue at the bottom, why do we call that sunshine journalism? But when people begin from the position of the bad and then don't even bother to try to sieve it down to what possibly could be good, We call that objective journalism. Mm. There's no objectivity on either side. The objectivity is somewhere down the middle. And what we do on Africa Business Report, Talking Business Africa, and the new offerings from the BBC is we begin from the middle ground, Mm. which is what's good, it needs to be told. What's bad, it needs to be reflected. And then let everybody else Mm. discuss. I like that. So I would like, as you were speaking, I thought of many things. One of the things I thought about was where were you when you got the call about BBC? I was in Amsterdam. 
And how do we, was it something? In fact, that, I lie. <laughs> I lie or or I fib. <laughs> <laughs> That's that same Mary's education coming through. <laughs> Sister Mary Clarence <laughs> has taught you how. Uh, okay, so actually, what had happened is um, I just left my old job. It was literally two, three days after leaving my old job, and um, I was going on a little bit of a sabbatical to clear my head in Paris because my best friend had just had a baby and she's married mm. to a Frenchman and she lives in Paris. And I dipped into my savings and I was going to France and Holland mm. to spend some time with her. And so the day before I made that trip, I went on that trip, I was running around doing my errands. Um, I was literally three days unemployed. Oh. <laughs> That's a record. <laughs> sure. I was three days unemployed and I was in the car park at my home uh, getting my stuff out the car and um, my phone rang and it was a plus four, four, uh, plus four, four number. Mm. And I thought this is England. I would know. I used to live there. But who is this calling me from London? And I thought it could be one of my friends, Emma Mariana, you know. And it was a gentleman called Simon Peaks. Mm. And Simon Peaks had gotten my number from Peter Burden, who had heard a couple of days earlier that I'd left CNBC. Mm. And they wanted to talk to me about a new show that they were launching a couple of months later. And they'd always wanted to approach me. But when they heard mm. that I was available, they thought they should call me now mm. before I even think of interviewing for any other job. Except I said to him, I can't go into your Joburg studio. I'm flying to Paris tomorrow. And frankly, right now, I don't want to really think about a job or anything mm. else. I just feel like I just need a moment of decompression. I've been working so hard. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And, and then he said, no, fair play. But actually, if you're coming to Europe, could we encroach on your trip a little bit? Uh, could we ask you just to go into our studios in Paris, if you're going to be in Paris? Literally, it's just an hour of your time and then we'll never bother you again unless, you know, just can you just audition for us? Mm. So I said, OK. So I get to Paris and I tell my friend this story. and She's like, no, that's great. You know, I'm a new mother. My baby's two weeks old. Um, I think me and baby need some fresh air. Let's all go to your oh, audition type thing. Nice. So the BBC studios in Paris are just off the Champs-Élysées on a street called Rue de Biery. Mm. And it's a small office, a satellite office actually. And I walked in there and we did this audition. And they said, thanks very much. It sounded really good. Um, we'll chat with you. And I continued with my holiday. By the end of that day, I get a call from the BBC saying... I know we said we wouldn't bother you on your holiday, but we were wondering, could you come to London? Mm. Uh, we'll pay for it. Mm. And I said, which part of I'm on a, a holiday, holiday do you not understand? Yes. I can't come to London. Besides, I don't even have a visa yes. for the UK. And they said, oh, okay, um, let's let's just apply our mind. Let's, let's just think about this. Uh, after Paris, or can we come to Paris? And I said, no, um, I'm getting on a train two days from now to Amsterdam. Can we meet you in Amsterdam? So basically, the BBC bosses, Simon Peaks and Jamie Angus, who is now the deputy director for BBC World Service, so he's now the big, big boss, yes. uh, they got on a plane, flew to Amsterdam, met me in the lobby of the <laughs> Amstel Hotel, yes. uh, said we just wanted to put a face to the name and the CV and the voice and whatever else. And we had a chat. They went back to London, and the next day I was in Amsterdam getting on a train, on a tram to go into the Amsterdam city centre when my phone rang. Jamie Angus, congratulations, we're making an offer. And then at the end of the phone call, he just said, welcome to the BBC. Oh my I gosh. cried like I couldn't oh, believe it. I cried for my brother, and I was in tears, oh. and people in Holland were looking at me. I'm on a tram, and I'm <laughs> crying. And, <laughs> and that, you know, and that is such That's a blessing to be, happened. I mean, to be three days unemployed, uh, you know, in this in the, in life is just something that you mm -hmm. don't hear of, you know, a lot mm -hmm. at all. Um, so let's also just talk a little bit about um, 
because you've had this career that's amazing and you travel a lot and, you know, just off, off um, b- before we were recording, we spoke about how you had to sacrifice a lot of friendships. Because I, I imagine a lot of people, I mean, myself certainly, when I look at your life, I kind of think that I'm like, wow, I want to be able to emulate in my own way you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. But there's a huge sacrifice in terms of personal relationships, you know, mm-hmm. before we go into the other amazing relationship yeah. that has occurred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think people look at the glamour of the media mm. and think it's just all a bed of roses. It's mm. beautiful. Um, but that's looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses. Mm. If you are looking for objectivity, accuracy, and global reach, you expect those reporters to mm. be on the ground, like I've just described to you. Certainly that's the BBC mandate. You've got to report from the ground as often as you can. So depending on the genre of news that you do, I do business and finance, but even if I was doing general news, mm. in fact, I think it would be a much more grueling schedule. Mm. Um, because if war breaks out, you must be there. Mm. If there is a natural disaster like an earthquake, you've mm. got to be there. Um, if there's a political trial going mm. on for the duration of the trial you've got to be in court and so on and so forth you've got to be on the ground so that means a lot of travel time and that means um unpredictable travel as well mm. because you cannot foresee what's going to happen at all at yeah. all so some things you can plan around elections you know they're going to be elections in drc or nigeria yeah. so you can plan ahead. But whatever happens in and around those scenarios, Mm. you cannot know. Mm. But you've got to be ready to go. And so what people don't know is many journalists, certainly I do, have a ready-packed bag. Mine is a green suitcase. It already has its own toiletry Mm. kit. It has its own hairbrushes. It has its own uh, gym tackies or sneakers, right? I already in my mind have a series of outfits that I know carry and Mm. travel well, Mm. right? So when that call comes, I know how to pack a suitcase in less than 30 minutes and be ready to make it for the airport. We always have to make sure we've got standing visas, Mm. right? So in moments of quiet, you'll find a lot of BBC admin around getting your U.S. visa, your U.K. visa, your Nigeria visa, so that when the time comes, if it ever comes, you are ready to go. There's a lot of that sort of stuff going on administratively. Anybody will tell you that in an international uh, broadcast network. And so when you live your life like that, constantly in motion, constantly going, you can't invest in relationships certainly not with partners who are expecting normality Mm. perhaps and and maybe this is why many journalists marry each other Mm. or you know cameramen marry to a reporter or they marry within the same circle because those are the people who truly understand and appreciate your life Mm. an ordinary let me not use the word ordinary because it sounds a bit disparaging but a but a man or a woman who works a nine-to-five job or an office sedentary job does not understand what it means to get a phone call that says, you need to show up in Indonesia right now because there's been an earthquake. They're looking for a little bit more planning. Life is not meticulous when you're a journalist and an international journalist. So it meant for many years I couldn't sustain relationships. Uh, I've met many lovely men in my life. I just, I need to be honest. I, I don't have a... I don't have bad experiences with men, but I couldn't be in those relationships because they were looking for a girl they could come home to. Mm. And I was a girl who was never home. Mm. And even if I was home, I was passing through. It was a sojourn. I was the girl with the green suitcase that's yeah. ready to go ready. when the time <laughs> comes. With the outfits that travel that are, well yeah. and the toilet sheets. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, you run a household remotely um my helper will tell you how she didn't see me for months on end but thank goodness for mobile money transfers and electronic banking because 
that's how we would fulfill our contractual obligations to one another. She has my house keys, I have her bank account, and I can pay her remotely from anywhere in the world, which I have done. You know? Um, so it, it, it's a kind of profession where if you're invested in it, you need to be surrounded by people who are invested in you and are not going to hold you guilty for pursuing your passions. You also know many female journalists don't have children. Mm. Is that a huge sacrifice to make? I think it's been a mm. I think it's been the biggest sacrifice I've had to make. Mm. Um because of my own personal beliefs, I wouldn't have a child out of wedlock. Mm. Those are my personal beliefs. I'm of nothing But it's just for you to say yes, uh, to to anybody else's circumstance. I, mm. I I would like to raise a child in a in a more conventional way. Mm with the mother and the father and the kittens mm. and the dog. The sort of picket fences. That picket fences. That's the sort of how I under, that's sort of how I th- I understand it yeah. would work mm. for me. And so without the stable relationship, it becomes impossible to pursue motherhood and without a more streamlined travel schedule. Even if I have a stable relationship, it becomes difficult to consider a child because when my child needs me, where will I be? Hmm. And as a mother, so, I can imagine that would be the hardest decision to make. Mm. But it doesn't mean women aren't doing it. Mm. Christiana Mampo, mm. she does it. Mm. Many women do it, you know, and, 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 and uh, media houses are starting to be more accommodating Towards, mm. of female journalists mm. And their rights as mothers and wives, mm. but it you have to arrive at that place emotionally. Mm. And I've got to admit, it took me a long time to get to that place, spiritually and emotionally, mm. where I said, "Okay, it can't just be about the job." Mm. So this is the perfect segue to my last <laughs> question, which I just think, I mean, because I heard the story and I thought, "Oh my gosh, it's just a fairy tale." <laughs> so, um, you know, so tell us um, about how it is that you finally married uh, the love of your life, the person <laughs> who gets you, you know, the person who allows you to be you and you complement each other. Because yeah. I think that that is just uh, in this day and age is something you don't hear often. Yeah. So I would like I would love to, you to share this um, with, <laughs> with so that if anybody's listening, they're like, if it can happen for Lorato, it can happen yeah. for me. <laughs> Well, you know, despite everything I've just said about being so preoccupied with my career mm. and giving it my all, I'm a romantic at heart. I've mm. always believed in fairy tales. Mm. I used to watch Days of Our Lives. And I used to think, hmm, that's me too. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> I watched many movies and thought, You're like, that could me. be me. That is going to be me. No, and, and, and I'm saying it actually sincerely. Yeah. I've always believed in love. I've always believed in the beauty of love. Mm. I mean, after all, my name is Lerato. And mm. we believe in South Africa, what you name your child she or he becomes it. So my parents gave me an auspicious name, love, the love mm. of God, the love of humanity, the yes. love of beautiful things, that love. So um, it's in me. It's in my blood. I always believed that I'm desperate, destined for love. Mm. But I, I never believed that I need to settle. Mm. I'm Please not, I'm not one to settle. Mm. And um, if I couldn't, give the best of myself in a relationship because of my circumstances, then we mustn't pursue that kind of a relationship. That's the first thing, to be fair to someone else. Mm. But also if a man can't give me the best of himself, I think he mustn't waste my time either. I'd rather be alone and happy than be in some kind of a quagmire trying to figure it out. I think there's enough on my plate for me to be confused. When I get home as well. So that was always my approach to relationships. But I, I did say to you earlier, you as an individual have to get to a point where you are ready to give of yourself. It, it has to come from you. And if you exude that, I think you will attract that. Mm. You know, they always say if you are happy inside, you'll attract happy, happy people. Yes. What you are, you will attract. Mm. So I had to get to a point where I am love and I am this frivolous joyful childish love and i had not been there in a long long time mm. 
You know, I, I often tell the story, and it, it irritates my husband, but I often tell the story of how I dated a guy very briefly. Mm. And I, on our fourth or fifth date, the guy already had named our children. Mm, and that's creepy. It was very creepy <laughs> that's for me. Very creepy. And it's I like, just thought, no, no, uh, no thanks. It's like, oh, what's up, please? <laughs> so, so, so I'm just saying that because I personally had not reached a point mm. where I wanted to be anybody's wife. Mm. Um, be suburban. I, I didn't want to do that. Mm. I had dreams and I just felt like marriage would absolutely encroach on those dreams. Mm. But three or so, or so years ago, I had a change of heart. Mm. I wanted to be loved. Mm. I was tired of coming home after an eight-hour flight and coming home to silence and coldness. Mm. And I have to open my fridge and there's nothing. And never mind how jet-lagged or tired I am, I must get in the car and go to the supermarket and stock mm. up and even count the number of days that I will need the food yeah. for because I'm going to be leaving again five days from now. There was just a point mm. two and a half years ago where that absolutely did not make sense to me anymore. And I had a few conversations with myself, which is, so one day, let's say you win a Pulitzer Prize, an Emmy, whatever. Will it be worth it? Hmm. And I have to admit, for me, it, it was not worth it. Hmm. It was not worth it to have international prestige and stature and nobody hmm. to share that with. And nobody to hold you or feel vulnerable and be able to say to somebody, I'm really nervous about this next assignment. Mm. I'm not sure I'm equipped to do it. And then you have a cheerleader who says, of course you can. Mm. And when you finish, I'll be here mm. waiting for you. And I felt I needed that and I deserved it and I wanted it. And so I had to fix myself up in terms of emotionally and psychologically and just, and, I'm, and I don't mean therapy or whatever. That's not what happened. Mm. But I just had to get myself be into truthful. the zone yes. Yes. and say, if you want this, Lerato, you have to make the adjustments, mm. you know. And my fertility also became a big issue because I thought to myself, am I going to get to a point where I've missed the chance? Mm. You know, and I remember speaking to my uh, physician and said, you're okay, you're good to go until you're 42. Don't stress, don't be hard on yourself. However, if you've reached that point where you think you do want to be a mother and you don't want to miss the chance of being a mother. You can't not stress. Then mm. you need to change your life. You can't come in here and say, am I still good? But nothing else about your life is changing. If you say your greatest achievement in life would be to be a mother, then you need to start making the shifts. Mm. And so those were just emotional and spiritual conversations I was having with myself. But as it turns out, I just started to resonate that energy. And then when I met my husband, whom actually I'd known for many, many years, mm. it's just one of those things where, you know, somebody's here, but you don't see him. Um, but when we sort of met again later in life, he saw the girl and I saw the guy. Mm. And uh, our relationship, as you know, uh, evolved from the platonic friendship it had been for many, many years into a romantic relationship pretty quickly. And very soon after we were dating, we were engaged. And of course, now we're married. And um, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to know that you don't have to be camera ready. Mm. You don't have to be the mm. best. You don't have to be the number one. Mm. You don't have to have all the answers mm. and for goodness sakes you don't have to get the groceries mm. for the next five days yeah. mm. it's a beautiful and a safe place to be and when i announced i was getting engaged my bosses were the most excited for me and i couldn't <laughs> understand what was going on with all the bosses in london and they came to the wedding but i get it now yeah. because basically i've been told now that you are secure you're going to be the very best journalist you've ever imagined you could be I love that. So would you allow me to do this? Because I, like, I grew up loving fairy tales amongst other things. So I'm going to, 
um, close this off by telling the fairy tale of your yeah. relationship. I hope I can remember it correctly. Yeah. So I paraphrase. Yeah. So for every little African girl who has a dream, who's got a career, who thinks she's never going to find somebody who's going to support that, who thinks that there isn't a possibility of having a balance, even though it's at different times of life. Yeah. This story is for you. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful young lady called Lerato. She was born in Soweto. Yes. She had dreams to become bigger than, you know, to, to live beyond her life and beyond what it was that she saw. And she also came from a family that told her that this was possible. Mm -hmm. She had a brother who works with Orlando Pirates, <laughs> who was her cheerleader and who supported her all along the way. Fast forward the story, as soon as she, she started um, entering into journalism, she did really well. So she went from SABC to Power FM to... Um, CNBC, BBC World, and now she's one of the most celebrated uh, broadcasters in the world. But one thing was always missing from Lorato's life, having that person that she'd be able to come home to so she would know that there was food in the fridge and somebody who would be able to say, you can do it and I'm here with you regardless of it. It took a bit of time, but as life would have it, she had known this person for 10 years. One day he walks into her life and he says to her, into her life again and says, why haven't you married me? <laughs> She ignores him, continues, and then a few months later, he actually asks her out on a date. On this date, they have a conversation about what they want. He's a divorcee. He says he wants a companion. They have a very frank conversation. The date was on the 1st of September. On the 28th of September, I believe it was somewhere in KwaZulu-Natal or something, <laughs> KwaZulu-Natal, she's in the middle of the wild, and all of a sudden, he proposes to her, and now... She's got it all. She has the man. She has a fairy tale <laughs> wedding. She's got a career that makes every African girl feel proud. Mm -hmm. And with that, she's still telling the African story in the most beautiful way. Lorato, thank you so much <laughs> for your time. Honestly speaking, I, you know, before we started this interview, I said that there were two people that I always wanted to interview when this podcast started was yourself and Nima yeah. Albahi. Yeah. And so for me, that fairy tale's come true. We just look forward to you winning a Pulitzer Prize and Emmy <laughs> and everything. And Thank I just you. know that, you know, even as you grow in love, you know, your career is going to definitely blossom a whole lot Thank more. You. Thank you very much for your contribution, Thank for your you. sacrifices and for your time. And you definitely are, I wouldn't say changing the African narrative, but I believe that you are the African story. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Africa State of Mind. I hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as we enjoy putting it together for you. And once again, a big shout out to all of the amazing people um, from around the amazing continent of Africa, uh, you know, who are really doing their part with regards to changing the narrative. Don't forget that you can interact with us. I'm on our Twitter handle at Africa State Mind. You can also join the Africa State of Mind group on Facebook. And please remember to rate us um, on iTunes. Let us know how it is that you think that we're doing. And if you have any ideas for any guests or people from your particular country uh, within the continent of Africa that are really changing the narrative, please be sure to share it with us. That's all we have for time for today. My name is Lika Sumba, Africa State of Mind. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Africa State of Mind with Lee Kasumba. Get it on iTunes now.